Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Untuck It and a new uh, advertiser or sponsor, uh, Ernest. And more about both of those in a little bit. So I think I've told this story before on this podcast, but there's an apocryphal tale, a possibly apocryphal tale, about how Winston Churchill was walking around in the private his his room when he was staying at the White House with uh, FDR, and he was ruminating about something as he was wont to do. And as he's walking around, pacing around, he didn't notice that his bathrobe had slipped off, and he was just walking around naked when FDR and an aide, I guess, knocked opened the door suddenly, and there was Churchill standing uh, completely naked, and. The story goes that rather than undignifiedly jumping behind a chair or hiding, Churchill stood bolt upright and just simply said, Mr. President, the Prime Minister of England has nothing to hide from the um, President of the United States. And, um, and so in the, in the similar interest of full uh, disclosure, we have no guest today. Um, I am running rap ragged. I just have our, uh, our, our trusty sidekick. What is it that... Uh, Gallagher called our new wants us wants us to call this thing. Uh, Jogo and and Jackie Butts. Jogo and Butts, right? That's the um. He said Jackie Butts. Did he say Jackie Butts? Uh-huh. That's that's too feminizing, I think, for you. But anyway, um, tell that to Jackie Gleason. Fair enough. Um, or Jackie Onassis. Uh, uh, it does. Are you do you have some sort of conspiracy theory about her her actual gender identity to reveal to us? No, I don't. Okay. I don't know. I'm as 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 Jack can attest. I um I don't quite feel like a million bucks. I feel more like a million Venezuelan boulevards. Um, I am recovering. I'm much better than I was yesterday. I drove. I rode back up on the Acela from New York City, and I discovered that the best way to keep someone from sitting next to you on a crowded train car and the quiet car on the Acela is to sweat profusely while coughing constantly and looking generally like uh, Doc Holliday from Tombstone. Uh, drinking, uh, smoking bad opium, because I was just a hot mess, and I haven't been blindsided by whatever the hell this thing is in in a while. I like this. I think it's just a cold, but who knows? And um, and so I'm a I'm a hot mess and kind of incoherent from all the the rich cocktail of cold medicine I've been taking. Um, normally I don't mix that stuff. Uh, I was on Fox News earlier this week and um, on Newsroom. And I must have used the cough button five, six times, and you know, which silences your microphone. And it, but it was still so obvious that I shouldn't be on TV that um, it became sort of a running joke of the panel. And um, so anyway, but I, I, we wanted to do uh, stay to our schedule of doing uh, two podcasts a week. What this means for the next podcast, I have no idea. But um, this is also an important week, which we can talk about in a bit in that this week is the last week before we announce the name of the new Hayes-Goldberg joint thingamabob, um, not to use a technical term, and we're going to start talking about how this thing's going to work, and this podcast is going to be folded into the new mothership, and I don't think it's going to change the remnant that much, though we have some ideas about some stuff to do. And, uh, so it's kind of a nostalgic moment for us to be doing this in the, um, you know, in the sort of one man or two man band operation, the way we've been doing it since I left, uh, National Review. And, uh, so do we want to talk about 
Do we want to talk about impeachment for a bit? People liked my impeachment rant um, or my Ukraine rant, which wasn't an impeachment rant yet at the time. Well, what are the new what, – what's new? What's new to discuss? Congress is in recess, so this is not apparently as urgent as we thought if Congress just left. <laughs> so – and what, what, what else has happened other than Trump just saying or doing things – did you watch his press conference with the Finnish guy? No, I no. never. I don't. Well, I don't really watch TV. Um, so I listened to it in the car, and it's kind of fascinating, right? He, he, President Trump, is still clinging to this idea that the phone call wasn't only. It, look, they're smart, reasonable people. Some friends of mine at National Review think that the the transcript, quote unquote, transcript of that conversation isn't nearly as damning as some think. They think that even if it is bad or deplorable or, or, or poor judgment, it's, it's not impeachable or it shouldn't be impeached. Those are all reasonable positions. Only crazy people think that conversation was perfect, which is what Donald Trump keeps calling it. He says, it's perfect. It was beautiful. There's not a thing wrong with it. Even if there wasn't a thing wrong with it, one wouldn't, like, while compiling a list of the 10 greatest conversations in all time, call that conversation perfect. Well, yeah, because there would be 10 episodes of The Remnant at the top of that list. So. And then also maybe some of the, uh, you know, some of the colloquies between, you know, Plato and or Aristotle or Socrates, but, you know, there's that. But anyway. Um, Those weren't phone calls, unless you hold to the uh, Silurian hypothesis. Oh, that's right. So, well, this podcast isn't a phone call either. Although it has, a couple of them have been. Anyway, and so what's what was really kind of interesting in his his rant was how desperate he is to make it sound. He kept saying, keep saying uh, the only people who have a problem with that phone call are the people who haven't heard, haven't read it. Right. And he keeps insisting that the transcript is verbatim, which it's not. It actually says it's not verbatim at the top of the page. And he really wants to plant the seed of a thought in people's heads that the objection to the, the, the conversation that he had is based upon Adam Schiff's idiotic decision to make up an entire conversation and read it in that hearing. And I think that was, like, I'm not a fan of Schiff's. He's a partisan hack. He does have a gift of sounding very serious while just using partisan talking points, and he shouldn't have done what he did. But the person who made that statement famous is Donald Trump because he won't let go of it. And, you know, he says it was treasonous or he suggests it was treasonous. He suggests it was illegal. He suggests he should resign for it. He wants people to believe that the objection to the calls with the call with Zelensky has nothing to do with the actual call and everything to do with this lie that Schiff allegedly injected into the political discussion. And it's just not obvious to me that it will work. I mean, it's just not true. Um, but But that doesn't really matter at this point. That ship has sailed. You know, truth claims matter so little today. But it is an interesting move, and I haven't heard people aping it yet. You haven't seen the, you know, you haven't seen people going full Gorka and 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 playing that, you know, trying to repeat that talking point because I just don't think it, it's it's sustainable. But it is isn't, enti- you know. So I was, I, it's very difficult going on Fox these days because people want it to be a clean thing where you know conservatives are four square against the impeachment and it's interesting all day long all these different shows because i was listening to a bunch of them and i was on a few there's this idea that somehow this thing is just simply a calamity for the democrats and it's bad news for the democrats and that's the issue here and 
there's merit to that. This is this really could backfire on the Democrats. If you do it like a straight line projection of where we are right now, I think odds are it will backfire on the Democrats. What I think people are leaving out is that, you know, so the theory that it'll, the, 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 the voters will blame Democrats for bringing impeachment is that there'll be so much drama. It'll be so ugly. There'll be ugly fighting. No one wants it. People are sick of politics as it is. And since it was a Democrat's decision to do this, they will blame the Democrats for impeachment. That has a certain amount of superficial plausibility. It may, in fact, be correct. But the problem with these straight line projections from the present to the future is that it doesn't take into account how Trump will react to this stuff. I've been arguing for I argued throughout the Mueller thing that I never you know, I never really thought the Mueller thing was going to find anything impeachable. Um, but I thought if he was going to be impeached, it would be how he reacted to the Mueller probe. And we saw that the stuff that came out in the Mueller report, most of the bad stuff had to do with Trump badly responding to the Mueller probe. He is not responding to the impeachment push any better. Arguably, he's been responding worse. And if he keeps doing what, like what he did last weekend with the 80 tweets and civil war and, and uh, treason and all that kind of talk, it is not obvious to me that voter, the persuadable voters will blame the Democrats for the ugliness of the impeachment wars when Donald Trump is going that nuts in all of this stuff. I mean, the reason why Bill Clinton survived the impeachment stuff had a lot to do with the fact that he refused to really engage with it. He said, I'm going to do the work that I'm supposed to do. You guys shouldn't be caring about this stuff. And I'm sorry for what I did, but you shouldn't be caring about it anyway. And I'm going to go do the job the American people sent me to do. That is literally the opposite of what Donald Trump's reaction to this is. He is leaning full in. He wants to argue about impeachment. He wants to make it sound like anybody who thinks he did anything impeachable or a crazy treasonous bastards. And I am not sure that that's the strategy I would go for. So it's entirely possible that he just loses his gourd over all of this. And people will think, look, I don't know about the Ukraine stuff, but my God, this guy seems unstable. And it's not obvious to me that it will, it'll help him. The other thing, which I wrote in my LA Times column this week, which as far as I can tell, nobody, including my editor, thinks was very good analysis. Um, but I'm going to stick to it for a little while longer, is this idea that it is conceivable, not necessarily likely, but it is conceivable that this impeachment stuff actually helps Biden. If you go and you look at where Biden was in the polls 10, 15 days ago, the entire conversation was about Warren's surge. Um, Warren overtook Biden in polls in Iowa and New Hampshire, not by a lot, sort of within the margin of error, but it really looked like the Warren surge was here and that Biden's sort of claim of inevitability was eroding. And it coincided with the corn pop thing um, and a few others. But it seemed like, okay, we now, you know, behold a God that bleeds. Biden's unconquerableness was, was, was starting to deteriorate. And now you have this impeachment thing. And the problem is, is that the case against Trump, which all the Democrats are involved in for this impeachment stuff, hinges on the case for Biden. And um, attacking Biden while he's Trump's primary target is a bad look, which is why every single primary candidate has rallied around Biden. And in an era of negative partisanship, where you actually gain support from your own side, the more the other side attacks you, right? That is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez learned from Trump, is that in this era of polarization, um, and Sass and I talked about this on this podcast, I've written a bunch of columns about this, um, in an area of where there are 
where of the negative partisanship, the greatest thing that can happen to you is for the people that your own side hates the most to attack you because then they rally to your side. So people forget in you know the beginning of this year, Nancy Pelosi was trying really, really hard to marginalize and sideline AOC and the squad. And then Trump went after Elon Omar or the squad. I can't remember what exactly was that they said, but it was something he said, but it was something sort of ad hominem and nasty. I'm not saying it wasn't true. I just don't remember what it was. And all of a sudden, Pelosi and everybody had to fall in line because the last thing you can do with the Democratic base is provide aid and comfort to Trump's attacks on one of your own tribe. And that dynamic explains to a certain extent why Bernie Sanders in 2016 threw Hillary a lifeline by saying, I'm sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Like you just made it a non-issue for for the the left-wing base of the party, which I think was a tactical, you know, catastrophe for Sanders. So anyway, my point is, is that these these forces of negative partisanship could actually have the unintended consequence of bolstering Biden at the precise moment where it looked like he was faltering. He could still end up blowing it all because he's he just seems to have lost a step. But it's it would be one of these great sort of ironies is that this this to, by my lights obvious effort to diminish and muddy up the guy who was beating Trump in the polls the most could have backfired and actually helped the guy who was, you know, hurting Trump the most in the polls. It just that's the way this timeline seems to play out time and time again, is that everyone runs right into the thing that's impossible. Um, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. You don't like talking about timelines now. No, 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 no. I just don't think. Look, what what you're talking about. Let's go back to what the Bernie, what happened with Bernie with. I'm sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Like, mm-hmm. okay, that became not an issue in the Democratic primary, but I mean, it wasn't. It, it became. It didn't really make the race. It didn't like force everyone to. It didn't make Hillary the runaway favorite. I would have to look and see. I don't know that when. I don't remember when exactly Bernie said that, but he still won the New Hampshire primary handily. Like he still was the thorn in Hillary's side for the rest of that that race. He was, yeah, and like. The, the making all the all the other all of Biden's competitors making this rallying to him on this specific issue may just neutralize it in the primary. But it's not like Bi- Biden was having different problems before this emerged, and like Warren's Warren's trajectory was uh, was real before this this came into the news. No, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, I mean, the test will be in the next debate to see if anybody goes for the jugular with Biden. But also, you know, I could be completely disproved by these fundraising numbers, which aren't, which the Biden campaign says it won't release until October 15. There's a lot of speculation out there that that donors are running scared from Biden because of all of this stuff, which would undermine my case. And if he comes out with a really low number, that would suggest that this negative partisanship rally around the target of the enemy thing isn't applying to Biden. There's some other methodological issues, you know, it's like Biden hasn't really relied on small donors the way Bernie has. Maybe he doesn't have the infrastructure for it to actually capitalize on these attacks. Maybe they're just using bad strategy. You know, Biden keeps downplaying all of this stuff rather than saying, rather than at least effectively saying, you know, you're either with me or you're with Trump in in this stuff. But you might be right. 
you know, and, and look, and Sanders' I mean, the, the Sanders' surge came mostly at the expense of Bernie, if you look at the numbers. Wait, you mean Warren's? Uh, Warren's, oh, sorry, Warren's. And um, um, it's also, you know, I also think that literally all of de Blasio's supporters went to Warren, but since he never pulled outside the margin of error of zero, it's an unprovable thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, look, you may be right. I could be wrong. But it just that seems to be more consistent with the trends of the last couple of years. And when I, you when you hear Kamala Harris saying "Leave Joe Biden alone," when you hear Cory Booker going, I think it was Meet the Press saying, "You know, Joe Biden's a statesman." It it'll be interesting to see in the debate whether these guys still think it's in their interest to take Biden down a peg, or whether they all start turning on Warren, who is clearly the bigger threat to everybody but Biden. I think it's more like a "You can't do that to our pledges; only we can do that to our pledges." Maybe. Maybe, like maybe. They, they'll like, Trump can't Trump can't criticize Biden, but we can. So the other thing about this, you know, sort of problem with the straight line projection analysis that's all over the place is this tendency to think that the fact patterns won't change. I think we're in a really bad place where we're talking about declassifying or putting out their private conversations between the president and foreign leaders. I think that is an objectively bad thing. I think that the decision – I'm still kind of baffled by the the decision to release this whistleblower thing and the, and the transcript because it kind of feels to me like they, they certainly thought that the transcript would help Trump more than it did. But the question remains is like if he was willing to talk about this stuff with Zelensky this way and hold up the aid the way that he did, one can only imagine the things he said to Putin or to Xi or whoever. And it's entirely possible that we discover all sorts of new stuff. I mean, we also it's also you know it's a game theory thing. Um, was the what do they call it in in prosecution stuff? King for a day or something like that, where the the perp who who flips first on the rest of his team um, gets a deal and nobody else does, or some phrase for it. You could hit a tipping point where enough people inside the administration are just like, "Holy crap! I I gotta you know I gotta be the first one out of here," and they start talking about other things that have been going on, and you could see sort of a critical mass kind of thing developed much more quickly than people realize. You can also see Trump coming out of this stronger than ever because it turns out that like. All they've got is that transcript and the whistleblower report, and there's no place for the story to advance. I mean, one of the reasons why Watergate worked was that you had this drip, drip, drip thing, and the story kept advancing a little bit at a time, and it drew in people and drama, and they defined what a smoking gun would look like, and then the smoking gun appears. When you drop the smoking gun at the be- in the beginning of the first act, it's very difficult to build up dramatic tension, and people can just say, eh, I don't like it, or maybe they're right that it's bad, but we got an election coming up, let's just move on. And then Trump, you know, comes out of this a winner. I just don't know. So, um, okay, so, you know, and then there's just sort of the general rank punditry thing about the, t- the 2020 election. I was talking to a um, prominent Republican office holder, I think it was last week, I can't remember now, and this off-the-record thing. And uh, he. Oh, I wasn't supposed to record the Mike Gallagher conversation. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't that. Um, It was up on Capitol Hill where I hate going. And I always feel like. That's where I live. 
<laughs> I don't mean I don't mean the neighborhood. I mean the actual Capitol building. Um, I never. That's where I live. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, never mind. Sleep on that bench. Um, and this guy was making the point that this senator uh, was making the point that in a normal world, the Democrats have moved so far left that they're basically handing these issues to the Republicans. You know, wiping out Medicare uh, advantage, wiping out private insurance plans, uh, forgiving all of this student debt, which is this, in reality, this this sop to the middle class um, or the upper class, um, because most student debt is actually in graduate school stuff. It's not in, in undergrad. And there are these issues that actually would redound really well to the Republicans if they could get the Republican uh, standard bearer to talk about them instead of all of this other stuff. And if the issues weren't about, you know, moats with alligators and all of that, which could have been a great half-baked idea segment um, on the on the Gallagher episode. And and so you could feel – I could feel the frustration in this, this, this senator's voice because he's like, you know, the, the problem that the senators have in holding on to the Senate is they have to hold on to the Trumpian base – while also outperforming Trump in the suburbs. And that's very difficult because what a lot of these suburbanite, particularly women, formerly Republican sympathetic voters, the reason why they are so hard to get for Republicans is because those women in particular, but those suburbanites are really down on Trump. And the problem is, is you can't win over those suburbs by attacking Trump. You have to win over those suburbs by running a different campaign than Trump is in the suburbs while still giving the the more rural uh, Trumpian voters what they want to hear. And so you're going to see a lot of Republican senators, you know, attacking vaping and, and talking about sort of local issues that appeal to suburbanites, while at the same time uh, saying nothing critical of Donald Trump that might piss off the rural voters. And that's a really hard thread, a uh, really hard needle to thread. And the palpable frustration I could hear from a lot of these senators is that they know how they could actually do this and win because the Democrats are giving them their issues on a silver platter. But if the conversation, if the messaging from the top is all of this, you know, treason and, and, and beware of the brown dusky people coming from below and all that kind of stuff, there's no way the suburban voters are going to hear the Republican candidates. And, you know, uh, you know, the student loan thing, for example, reminds me of our first sponsor this week, which is Earnest. Do you have student loans? Refinancing them with Earnest could save you money or lower your monthly payment. And it only takes two minutes to check your rate online. If you are still paying the same rate you were when you graduated, odds are you could reduce your monthly payment and save big. If you have refinanced before with today's low rate, environment, most people can save by refinancing again. Earnest is the easiest way to refinance your student loans, saving you time and money. Checking your new rate is fast and easy. To start, complete a few questions online. It only takes about two minutes, and you'll get a personalized rate estimate, all without affecting your credit score. If you qualify, Earnest offers customizable loans, terms, and fees. You can even combine private and federal loans. Imagine having only one single monthly payment with one low rate. 
already refinanced a loan? No problem. You can still be eligible to lower your interest rate again. Plus, the internet loves Ernest's customer service. They're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot. So you'll always get the support you need. So start saving today. Our listeners get a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. That's $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. Go to earnest.com slash D-I-N-G-O today. Terms and conditions apply. So, uh, maybe story time now. I, uh, so I got a, uh, I was up in the Adirondacks at an undisclosed location last weekend with my wife and we were driving back to DC and, uh, we stopped, uh, right before the, inter- you know, after driving for a couple hours, it is hard to get back from up there. Um, after driving for a couple hours, I just want to keep the location of this a little shrouded in mystery. Um, were you at that place, um, where the thing happens with the people project Montac? What's that? Uh, look it up. Okay. It's, it's like Dharma, the Dharma Initiative? Uh, look it up. Okay. Um, I hope you didn't tell our listeners to look up something really horrible, but... No, no, it's it's fine. Just standard conspiracy theory stuff. Okay. So, we were driving, and we were about to get on uh, the interstate. It was really beautiful up there with all the foliage and whatnot. And um, we saw a road sign that said, coming up... Italian sausage, kielbasa, um, all the stuff that, you know. This jo- is on a road sign? It was, like, it, was, it was a handmade thing saying, you know, like uh, like when you see farm stands, they'll put signs oh, like a mile not up. Like, not yeah. like a green interstate, like. No, 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 no. <laughs> sausage, five miles. Although you want, all right, so uh, uh, a discursion within my discursion. Um, my daughter recently got her learner's permit, and so she was studying for it, and she was asking me all sorts of questions. Did you know that the orange speed limit signs, when they say like 55 miles an hour, if it's orange, do you know what orange means? Uh, I probably should, but I don't. Yeah, I didn't. I've been driving for a long time. It's merely a suggestion. Oh. It's not, if it's on white, it's the speed limit. If it's on orange, it's just like, this is the suggested speed by which you should take this turn or whatever it is. And so you just see the orange, like 35 mile an hour sign when you're trying to get off like those the are, belt Those are, I only ever see those yellow. Well, orange, yellow, I mean, it, uh, the non-white ones are, um, I don't know, I guess I, I guess it is more of a yellow. I, the thing is, Jack, unlike you, I don't see color. <laughs> um, but uh, You were about to say something about the non-white ones. So yeah. I was curious to see where that was going. Um, and uh, so anyway, I, I had no idea those were just suggestive. So anyway, we pull over. It's a great food truck thing. And um, I'm walking up, and um, or we get up to the thing. And the guy goes, you know, he's, a, he's a chatty Cathy. He's talking to the customers before we get there. And then he talks to us and he's like, where are you guys going? And we said, Washington, D.C. And he said, why, you know, why would you want to go there? And I said, well, because we live there. And he says, well, why would you? And I said, oh, I know why you live there. I recognize you. And he recognized me from Fox. And he told me this interesting story. He says, once a year, Bruce Springsteen stops by with his daughter on the way to some horsey thing that his daughter's into. And... He says Bill O'Reilly's there a lot, and, and he talked so much. And it's like literally just this roadside thing, and uh, and he couldn't stop talking about how tall Bill O'Reilly was, which is true. Bill O'Reilly's dismayingly tall. And how uh, tall is he? Um, 
I want to say at least six six, something like that. Huh. He's, he's tall. He's tall. Um, and uh, um, and somebody told us some stories about about O'Reilly. Nothing too juicy or whatever. And um, and anyway, so we're just waiting for him to cook. You know, I ordered the Italian sausage thing, and my wife got the kielbasa, and we're waiting. And he's a chatty guy. And it's a beautiful day. And he says, "Oh, you're so you're into politics, right?" You know. And he says, "You know." Let me tell you a story. Okay. And he gives me the exact date of the thing. I, just, I, I don't know what the legal requirements are for all this. So I'm just going to keep it vague. But he says, on this date last year, and he tells me the story about how this guy shows up in a, um, and he names the make and model of the car, some Japanese car, and he gets out and they're waiting to order. And then this pickup truck on the other side of the stand parks this guy walks down, and he's like a Har- – he described him as sort of like a Harley kind of guy, like a New York State logger kind of guy. And he had a Trump sticker on his ca- truck. And the guy in the Japanese car, which had uh, uh, Vermont plates, um, just starts screaming at him and yelling at him about how could you support Trump and blah, 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 and and, um, and just really kind of losing his, his, his gourd about it. And the logger guy doesn't say a word. He just grabs the guy by the back of his head and slams his face into the truck counter. <laughs> and this guy was telling the story in such a funny way. Like, I'm chuckling as the whole time. And then he says that, and he, he admonishes me. And he says, don't laugh. This was bad. And I'm like, oh, I guess this is bad. And he says, yeah, the guy lost about 12 teeth, uh, needed three like facial uh, facial uh, surgeries and one on his spine in the back, and they threw him into the car and and rushed him driving the wrong way away from the hospital. He ended up getting medevaced, and it was just awful. And the guy had to close down for the day because there was blood and teeth everywhere. It was ah. and the Harley guy turns to the guy who's cooking sausages and just says, um. I'll come back another time and went and got in his truck and drove away. And the guy couldn't see his license plate. You know, he described the truck, whatever, but he couldn't see his license plate and the guy split. And then the story goes on about how like the cops came and he talked to the cops and the got, they had been told a different version of things and blah, 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 blah. And, um, and then the guy, the victim's son, like three weeks later showed up and says, could you just tell me what happened here? And this guy's like, you know, look, I don't know. I don't know what you can get away with in Vermont, but like in New York state with these like logger types, you, you don't go off on somebody about Trump. And the kid, the guy's son was like, well, yeah. Um, and, and it was just this crazy ass story. And, um, they never found the guy, but it gives you a sense of like, you know, the, the pent up frustrations. And now imagine what if, what would happen if that had been on social media, um, how much crazier our politics had been, you know, which is not entirely implausible that something like that couldn't be. Anyway, I just thought it was an interesting story. Well, that's not exactly encouraging because I like to believe that a lot of the silliness or a lot of the anger in our politics has come comes from uh, media-saturated places like the one we're in now not not the building we're in now the city we're in now and that in real america things are better well not not even real america i mean just like non-dc america people just care about these things less yeah because they're not 
they're not being blasted into their lives 24-7. But apparently that's not the case. <laughs> well, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data necessarily. So, But I just it was like the way he told it, it just kind of left us kind of stunned. And, you know, this is part of my, you know, my point about the social media thing is that we look at social media and it makes us, it, it makes things so much more present than they really are. You know, if I tell you that story, it's in a, like, oh, that's a grim story, whatever. If it had been like the Covington kids and it had been really captured on a couple iPhones all the way through, you would have all of these, you know, the Civil War is coming people blowing it out of much, blowing it into much greater importance than it was. Instead, it was just like this unfortunate, the equivalent of a stupid bar fight, a very one-sided stupid bar fight. But as time goes by, more and more of these things are going to be captured on some sort of video. They're going to be posted to the web and they're going to make things even, you know, more fraught than they currently are. The need for a Butlerian Jihad is becoming more present every day. Uh, yeah, for listeners who don't know, that's a Dune reference. Not my, not a reference to my personal jihad. That's <laughs> um, actually where I learned the word jihad was from Dune. Um, cause Did we, you also learn the word major domo from Dune? I might have. Because that's in God Ember of Dune. Yeah. Um, I remember years ago when I worked for Wattenberg, Ben brought me to... Um, Jack Kemp's office. We were doing a documentary and Kemp was next to me in the buffet line, you know, for this little lunch that we were having. And he's like, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm sort of like Ben Wattenberg's major domo. And he's like, major domo. That's a great word. And that was about the extent of my interaction with Jack Kemp, at least for another five years. So, um, so getting back to the punditry a little bit, um, uh, you know, I have to be a little careful because I'm a Fox News contributor, and um, um, and I mean, forget being quote unquote colleagues with some of these people. Some of them are my friends and whatnot. Some of them aren't. Um, but uh, it was interesting being in New York and being on you know these daytime shows on Fox, which I haven't been doing a lot of of late uh, for some of the obvious reasons. And you know, it's funny. I will defend. The Fox News side against CNN and MSNBC. This is not necessarily to say that I like everything that's on the Fox News side. I'm a, I am a, I am a passionate defender of of Brett Baer and and Chris Wallace, who I think try really really hard to do it right. But if you look at MSNBC and CNN, there really is no distinction between purely news people and purely opinion people. I mean, some people are more circumspect than others. I mean, Chuck Todd, I think, tries to sort of keep it analytical and and nonpartisan. But, you know, people have their strong passions about Chuck one way or the other. But virtually almost everybody else at MSNBC, they're allegedly news people who just, the second they switch from camera one to camera two, become opinion people. And it's very difficult to distinguish between them. Uh, I know I rant about this all the time where, like, Rachel Maddow, there's an ad for her on on satellite radio where, you know, she says the news without fear or favor. I mean, she's not a news person. She's like loads everything with opinion. That doesn't mean she doesn't use facts and arguments and all the rest, but she's obviously an opinion person. And at CNN, I think Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer do a pretty good job of staying out of the opinion stuff. But the way those places are structured, it's all, there's a lot of opinion that gets mixed in with the news and that stupid, um, you know, what 
Ben Sass calls the Chiron game, which is, you know, uh, I saw someone this weekend who listened to that episode with Ben Sass and they didn't, they had no idea what Chiron meant. Um, and it's just the text on the lower part of the screen. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, CNN plays a lot of games with merging opinion and journalism. And Fox has done a better job than people give it credit for trying to keep these distinctions alive. And so anyway, there was this, I had this frustration where what I've been noticing on the daytime news side is they will take quotes from the evening opinion people and treat them as if they're news. And so I was on newsroom this week and they take a long video clip of Laura Ingram talking about how the way to understand this impeachment stuff is that the Democrats are terrified that the investigation into the investigators is about to come out and they're trying to distract from that and they know that Bill Barr is going to find all of this stuff and blah, 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 blah. Whether you think that's a defensible opinion or not, you know, Laura's a smart person and I mean, I, I think she's wrong about that, but she's not, it's not an insane opinion. Um, I just think she's wrong. It's not news. Right. It's not it's not a congressman or a senator or a politician saying something. It's a clip from an evening opinion show. And I've noticed it more and more is that the way I think Fox gets in blurs these distinctions is they don't have their news anchors do a lot of opinion stuff, but they sort of name check and key off of the opinion stuff and treat it as if it has more credibility or authority or gravitas than it deserves. And, you know, you see more and more clips from Hannity as if they are newsmaker segments. You know, and sometimes, technically they are. Jim Jordan was on the other night. Jim Jordan, if you don't know, is the guy who virtually never wears jackets because he was a former wrestler. He's the guy who, that, that, that Mike Gallagher was afraid to fight. But Jim Jordan is also, I'm sorry to say, he's become just a straight-up partisan hack in the way he talks about stuff. If you get a chance to watch the from last Sunday, the Jake Tapper interview with with uh jordan i mean he was just a smear merchant who just kept kept eliding facts that he knows to be true with things that he knows not to be true and it was it's embarrassing i mean it's it's just embarrassing to see all of that stuff being treated as if it's very very serious all the stuff about biden being corrupt you know as donald trump says he's, he's he's just totally crooked is based on a garbage story hunter biden may be corrupt hunter biden certainly is is ethically challenged. Biden was clearly ethically in the wrong about the appearances of firing that prosecutor, given what Hunter Biden was doing. But there's zero evidence that that Biden stopped an investigation into his son. Oh, and that brings me, so that was made me think of this. So Tucker Carlson gets this photo of Biden, of the Bidens and this other guy playing golf and this was supposed to be like the smoking gun that proved that Biden was a liar when he said that he never spoke to his son about the Burisma stuff. And it turned out that that, that photo was kind of uh, BS. Um, turns out the guy who was also at Burisma was at Burisma, uh, who joined Burisma at the same time that, that, that Hunter did, and that Hunter and that guy had been friends for years. But the news side takes these things that are put into the bloodstream by the opinion side and they treat them as if they're advancing the story. And I guarantee that nobody on the news side vetted that photo. Nobody on the news side, you know, sort of ran down the story and the facts behind it before Tucker put it out there. And then once Tucker put it out there, that made it news enough that the news side can say, well, we're just reporting on the news because Tucker put it out there. And then Trump tweets it out and it becomes a thing, even though the thing it is, is symbolic of what is probably, you know, at least a distortion, if not a straight up lie. And, um, and that to me is, is a real, real problem. 
Um, oh, but I want to say about you know, what made me think of all of this was we were talking about Jack Kemp, and that made me think of Jim Jordan because both of those guys hated to wear jackets, and they loved to go around wearing these crisp, tucked-in shirts that show their physique. Because they were both very fit. Well, Jim Jordan is, and Jack Kemp was. They're very fit men. He was, but I got to say, you know, Jack Kemp would look just fine in a shirt that was untucked, particularly a shirt from Untuck It. Ever wonder why traditional button-ups look so long and baggy? That's because they were never meant to be worn that way. Untucked shirts were specifically designed to be worn untucked. Have you been frustrated with shirt buying in the past? I am in the sense that, like, you sometimes, I, I, this whole fitted, not fitted, all this kind of stuff, um, I never know what it actually means. And um, uh, untuck it, you, you know what you're going to get. The sizing makes sense. It's intuitive. And when you get it, it's comfortable. It looks, it looks like you haven't, you know, that you're not just wearing some old shirt that you had lying around that you don't, isn't a dress shirt anymore or you don't care about how you look. It looks like you meant to do that, in effect. And that's what the whole point of Untuck It is. So try it on, you should try and untuck it on in person at one of Untuck It's 50 stores. Or go to untuckit.com, that's where I go, to get started. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S., Take that, Canada. You can save 20% on your first order by using my code, DINGO. That's D-I-N-G-O at checkout. That's untuckit.com, promo code DINGO. All right, so um, I think if I can write a G file, if I feel up to it, um, I might try the audio G file thing again. Um, we'll see, but you know, next week it's going to be Brave New World. Um, Where can people sign up for the G-File? That is an excellent question, Jack. Thank you. Uh, for the next, like, 96 hours, they can go to Reagan35x.com. That's Reagan35x.com. Um, after that, after Tuesday, I think, it's just going to be a completely different world. I mean, totally different. We are going to immunize the Eschaton after Tuesday. Ah, that's a bit strong. Um <laughs> In case of eschaton, great <laughs> class. Um, right, do we have time for one more story? Sure we do, because it's my podcast. Um, so uh, two more stories. Uh, so I got these new glasses. I don't know if you've noticed them, Jack. Uh, oh. Yeah. Um, but um, they're, they're these glasses that tint when exposed to daylight. Are you a vampire? Uh, no, but like, I was like, I'll give it a try. You know, I, you know, vampirism, you're going to give it a try. I give vampirism a try. I mean, it all, it all, you know, the thing about vampirism is it really depends on what the metaphysical bargain is. If you're not actually losing your soul, if it's just a biological phenomenon, there's a lot to be said for vampirism. So long as you don't have to just eat human blood, right? If any blood will keep you going, you know, drinking pig's blood for the rest of your life for immortality does not seem to me to be like an obvious transaction that someone wouldn't make. No? But if you lose your soul, that's bad. Right? <laughs> Big if true. Um, so it all depends, you know? Because, look, in the in the vampire canon, sometimes it's it's magical and sometimes it's biological. Uh-huh. And that's what kind of depends. It's like zombies, right? Are they spiritually undead? Right? Is hell, f- is hell full and they're spilling over? Or is it a biological thing? And um, I think these distinctions matter. So I'm I'm not a hundred percent against vampirism. Um, it may not be the lifestyle I want. The thing that bothers me about I'm glad you brought this up because I I I, I did not know I didn't know either. Rant stored in you. 
but I've got, you know, I'm, 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 I'm working off the cold medicine as I sit here sweating like a fat man at an all-you-can-eat pasta bar. Um, you know, it's not only fat men who sweat at all-you-can-eat pasta bars. Yeah, but fat men do it better. Um, and uh, uh, no, we are not going to start selling T-shirts that say fat men do it better. And uh, we demand for them now, though. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the creepy thing about the vampire stuff, particularly like the, the Twilight stuff, but also Angel, in, you know, which was a spinoff of Vampire the uh, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> Vampire the Buffy Slayer, <laughs> um, much shorter live series. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and uh, is that um, it's super creepy. Like that. Imagine if the older vampire, usually male, looked closer to their real age, um, like Nosferatu, right? I mean, uh-huh. well, like so. Angel is in the in the Buffy verse. I think he's like four hundred years old, something like that. And if there was some wrinkled old dude slavering over a seventeen girl, every seventeen year old girl. Everyone would agree it's incredibly creepy. Yeah. But because they look like young men, there is this weird... I mean, it's like, whose fantasy is being played out here, right? Like, cause, like the the teenage girl and the hundred-year-old dude should not be, like, one of the romantic archetypes of our culture, but it kind of is, and it kind of creeps me out. I mean, if my daughter brought home... A, my 16-year-old daughter brought home a boy... And she was like, yeah, no, we're getting along great. And I think, this, I think he's the one, but I should tell you, dad, you know, he's actually 112. <laughs> um, I would have problems with that, you know? And uh, so I think there's a creepy thing that gets going on in all of that. Um, Reminds me of an Onion article I saw once with the headline, something like, uh, Asian teen has uh, white middle-aged man fetish. <laughs> I will just say that and move on. Um so that's like there's a line in 30 Rock where uh, Liz Lemon tells her friend, oh, yeah, you're totally Jack Donaghy's type. You just need to be 10 years younger and Asian. Anyway, so <laughs> uh, I got on this because of my glasses. And um, they tint. They get this sort of dark gray when I'm outside. And they, they hold on to the tint for a little while when you come inside. And so every time I walk into the house, my wife says, Welcome home, Comrade Gerald Zelsky, <laughs> which is like such an unbelievably dated Cold War thing. But Gerald, I can't remember what his first name, I think it was Vladimir, but his first name, I can't remember what his first name was. But Gerald Zelsky, who was, I believe, this Polish general um, who ran Poland towards the end of the Cold War, had these tinted glasses that he wore all the time. And um, it's just funny how I was talking with somebody about this, about how like so many people don't get Cold War references anymore. Uh, oh, I was talking to David French because he was saying how he's having a really hard time not saying the Ukraine, um, oh, which you're not yeah, supposed yeah. to say, but it was like such a big deal, you know, back in the old days. Um, well, I'm I'm glad that the, the fair Jessica is finding a use for her Sovietology degree. That's right. Um, Procured in, what, 1991? Uh, thereabouts, yeah. I mean, like, literally the Soviet Union was falling apart as she got her, her master's degree. Um, and uh, another Cold War story which I wasn't planning on. But as you can see, this podcast is so rife with planning. I heard a general, former general guy speaking to some audience a while back. And he was talking about how these young people, including young policymakers, just grew up in a completely different world where the Cold War stuff wasn't essential. And he made some, he told some story about how he was talking about most of my life, I was spent talking about how to defend the fold of gap. Uh And some young congressional aide, said, oh, I know that gap. That's the one in the mall where I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Fulda Gap is actually this thing in, I think it's in Germany. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My So my 
my grandfather actually was stationed there uh, during in the fifties. Oh, really? And he was he thought he was going to have to go to war when the um, uh, Hungary up- uprising occurred. Yeah, fifty um, six, I believe that was fifty eight. I believe right around fifty six. No, you're right, fifty six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He thought he was, and the, the, his job was basically to be cannon fodder until NATO troops arrived. Right, he's the tripwire. Yeah, you know, it's like those troops in North Korea and South Korea. That their job there is to be a deterrent. Because if they kill a bunch of Americans, we'll kill them. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and the Folder Gap is like just for ge- geographic reasons is where like the Red Army would bring its tanks in or something. Yep. Like that. Um, anyway, so uh, what made me think of all of this? Um, Your glasses. My glasses. So yeah. Anyway, I came home the other day, and after um, the Gerald, the, the knee slapper Gerald Zelsky quip, um, my wife was like, "Yeah, um, got some news." Uh, just heard that my brother crashed his plane in Alaska. And uh, true story, he's okay, he's alive, uh, but it was pretty scary. My second oldest brother-in-law, Rudy, they all have these cabins that you can only either get to by um, what we in the lower 48 call snowmobiles, but you do not call them snowmobiles in Alaska. They're snow machines in Alaska. Um, Snow machines in the lower 48 are things that make snow, which I think is more intuitive. Um, but that's just what it is. And if you say snow machine in Alaska, they were like, why would you have a machine that makes snow? Um, and, uh, um, uh, um, so anyway, uh, shout out to all of our Alaska listeners. Um, he was taken off in his float plane and, uh, I don't know exactly. He went up, hit a big gust of wind or he stalled out or something, but the wind just basically, grabbed his plane like King Kong and slammed it into the lake. <laughs> and um, uh, so he and his friend, they went under, they went into the drink and their dog too. And, um, and he found himself, you know, having to unbuckle and climb out of the plane. Um, he and his buddy make it out and they swim to this island in the middle of the lake. And because he's a smoker, he had a lighter with him and, so he's stuck. It's it's not freezing, but it's cold and it's windy, obviously. And they're soaking wet, and they're on this island. They build a fire, and they have the the, the the he still has his phone on him, which wasn't ruined. But the problem is, is that cell service out there is just intermittent, and he had to wait uh, about eight hours before he got one bar that was reliable enough to call friends or family. And they just sat there shivering on this shivering on this lake, luck, lucky to be alive. And then at one moment, the wind died down enough for them to hear barking. And it turned out that the dog survived too. But unlike Rudy and his friend, he had the good sense to swim for the other shore by the cabin. <laughs> and uh, and he was pissed. But anyway, they, they ended up surviving and all that. But um, it was one of these crazy near-death experiences. And it kind of sh- shook him up. And I don't blame him. I've actually had the training to how to survive a seek uh, a, a water land, a water crash. I did a piece for NR years ago about the um, offshore oil um, boom. And unfortunately it came out about three months. It was called the beauty of offshore oil drilling or something like that. And then three months later, the BP oil spill happened and that was not convenient. <laughs> um, but in order to get insurance clearance to go onto this oil well, this oil um, thing in the, um, you can tell I remember all the technical terms. <laughs> uh, I really am becoming like Homer where he says, pass things scoop food with 
and Marge says, you mean a spoon, homie? Um, uh, the oil platform, uh, in order to get clearance as a civilian onto it, you had to take this day of training. And one of the things I had to do was, um, with these other journalists, including William Lajones from Fox, is in Houston, there's this company that does this where you get in, they have the fu- real fuselage of a helicopter, and they have it on tracks, and they slam it into an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And you go in, and the thing flips over, and you have to learn how to get out of every one of the seats um, and get out in time. And basically, it boils down to follow the bubbles, because you'll get disoriented about which way is up, and um, particularly if you're, like, concussed. And the thing is, you follow the bubbles, and that way you know which way is up. I always kind of felt I would still know which way is up, but who knows. But it was a great class. I learned all this stuff about how to jump off an oil platform, the best way to do it, to avoid biting off your tongue and splitting your legs like a wishbone. Um, I learned how to make a survival uh, flotation devices out of natural fiber t-shirts. Um, so I got my survival training badge with me. Um, but other than that, uh, I have nothing more to add. So uh, I'm sorry for the rambling and discursive podcast this week. Everything is about to get much more ship particularly if I get healthier. We have hopefully soon we're going to have Rich Lowry on where Rich and I are going to go uh, hammer and tongs on the issue of nationalism. And I'll leave all the predictions for the exciting announcements um, to a later to the second podcast if I manage to end up doing it. But uh, please keep uh, listening. Um, I promise we're going to have a whole bunch of exciting stuff coming. And I'm really grateful to the loyal fans of the G file and the remnant who stuck with me for these last few months when I was basically self-employed um, after leaving NR and, um, exciting things are coming. Jack, is there anything else that we need to, uh, be talking about? I mean, I could make all sorts of suggestions, but I understand. we can, they can wait for a later time. All right. So sign up for the G file and for announcements about the new thing at Reagan 35 X.com. Talk to us on Twitter at, at Jonah remnant, and I'll see you next time. No, you all on this podcast.